start, I'll say a little bit more about myself. For the past two years, my job has been more administrative. I am now working at Pacific Clinics, looking at the way that outcomes and training increase people's ability to do what works. But prior to that, I was a program director for about 20 years. And, you know, sometimes when you look back, uh, you know, realizing that I got LPS designated in 2001, you're like, oh, son of a gun, that was 20 years ago. Um, and there have been any number of situations I've found myself in over the years where I, I've thought, and I was, you know, reflecting back to those ones in the early 2000s, when things were happening and all I could think was, what the heck is happening right now uh, with this client? What the heck is happening with this family? Um, stuff seems to have jumped the tracks much quicker than I had anticipated. And I'm going to do my best to hang on and settle things down, but yikes. And really, if, if you have found yourself or might at some point in the future find yourself in such a situation, the purpose of this training is to give you a sense of ability to understand that and hopefully an ability to better deal with it. So here's our plan today. We're going to talk about escalation. And this is a different kind of escalation than sometimes when we talk about de-escalation um, of maybe anger or sometimes, you know, we usually when we think of de-escalation, our mind almost automatically goes toward police situations where we wish de-escalation had been implemented earlier and then prevented a violent uh, outcome. In this escalation, we're going to consider it becoming more intensely negative and riskier through a vicious cycle. The negative thoughts lead to more negative thoughts. The negative actions lead to more negative actions. The negative interactions lead to more negative interactions. And we're going to look at that three different ways. The desire for suicide that exists within a client, interactions with family, friends, and community, and then also this notion of escalation of attempts. Now, the first two those escalations tend to happen right there in the moment. That's a back and forth that um, occurs right before your eyes and right into your ears. The escalation of attempts, that's a different type of escalation that can happen over weeks, months, and even years. So we'll, we'll realize that within these three categories there are actually even two types of escalation, but I think we can manage that. So as we're getting started, in order for me to try to match this presentation to your experience, let's answer four quick questions. To review what we as a group today have kind of stated, almost 95% of us have worked with a client who, have ex who has expressed suicidal thoughts. That's heavy on its own. And when we talk about a client who feels like they're a burden, that their family would be better off if they died, almost 70% of the people on this call have dealt with that kind of heaviness with a client. And then there's sometimes the client you're working with when you think, oh, damn, this is, this is different. 
this person might be unafraid or even ready to die. 44%, closing in on half. And then I want to take a moment to work with um, appreciating the 10% of the people on this call who have worked with a client who has died by suicide. Uh, that takes a, a type of professional resilience that isn't cheaply come by. Um, that's earned, that's lived experience. And to be able to bring that resilience and the wisdom of that experience into a career um, is no joke. And I wanna just let you know, I see you. This two hour training will not be talking about some of the evidence-based protocols in the treatment of suicidality. If you haven't had the opportunity to do any of these, I recommend you do them because they're the best. So dialectical behavior therapy, has beaten randomized control trials in the treatment of suicidal thoughts and behaviors. If you get the opportunity to take a DBT course, I recommend it. CAMS, the Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicidality, same, has beaten randomized control trials, particularly for adults. For children and teens, Safety, safe alternatives for teens and youth. There's a subsection of this also called FISP, Family Intervention for Suicide Prevention. FISP is kind of part of safety. Um, also, beaten randomized control trials uh, for children and youth. And what's maybe different about safety from the other ones is it's more ecological in terms of involving the family in the treatment for the safety protocols. The, there are two clinicians, one works with the child, one works with the caregivers, and then they get together kind of for the other part of the session. So maybe for the first half hour, there's an individual with the teen and a meeting with the caregivers, and then they get together all for the uh, second part. So that's maybe the, the structural difference of safety. And then, and not this weekend, cause you got the Super Bowl, but on another weekend when, you know, you still got nothing to do, uh, there's every reason to get online. And I, I, I'm flippant about it. So let me actually even say it more seriously. It's only a couple hours worth of online training and it's top notch. So CALM, Counseling on Access to Lethal Means, that's through the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, free online. And they give a very competent and direct approach to how do you help your clients be less likely to die in a case of suicide risk. There's every reason to do that one. And you don't need to wait for that training to be available like you might for DBT camps or something. And maybe similar to the way that we found, you know, for us, 94% have worked with clients with suicidal thoughts. 10% of us have worked with clients who have died by suicide. 
it's a much broader group of people. This is uh, 2019 data from SAMHSA. Looking at 12 million adults in America had serious thoughts of suicide in 2019. We don't yet have the pandemic data, but the odds are that this circle has even grown. But you can see there's a subset of that group that made suicidal plans. And there's a subset of that group that made an attempt. Now, not every attempt went along with a plan. And we'll talk about that impulsiveness as we move forward. But really looking at the numbers, and I think in 2018, um, it was about 47,000 people died by suicide. The reason you don't get that 2019 data on the deaths is that that kind of information has to work its way through the hospitals and the coroners. And so it tends to be about two to three years behind um, in terms of reporting. But the most recent info on thoughts, plans, and attempts really shows us that it's the smaller subset. And that's where we're going to be focusing on today. We're going to be talking about this group and maybe even a group within this group. Now, while DBT, CAMS, and safety provide treatment throughout this, this is where we'll be focusing. And that's not to say that anyone in this outside range is having an easier life. Heavens no. Um, suicidal thoughts um, can be torturous for a client, can be torturous for caregivers. Uh, this is not a statement of level of distress. This is talking about escalation. One more piece that I want to make clear in terms of best practices before we start talking about um, the way that we're going to conceptualize escalation, and that's just assessment, ongoing assessment of risk. And the method that we use at Pacific Clinics, and a lot of places throughout the county use it, is the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale. We use this six-question uh, lifetime and recent screener. And these first two questions, have you wished you were dead or wished you could go to sleep and not wake up? What we might call passive suicidality is the first question. Then the second one is the suicidal thoughts question, right? Connected to this broader gray circle. If the answer to these two are no, then you don't even really move ahead, right? You don't go to questions three, four, five, and six unless you get a yes. But best practices in working with clients with suicidal thoughts include regular assessment. So now let's look at some basic questions. What, what moves someone from suicidal thoughts to an attempt? What is that process like? Well, we know that depression is the most common diagnosis when it comes to suicidal thoughts. And I use this term desire, which will be um, more clearly explained as we move forward. 
depression is associated with desire for suicide. And once you include diagnoses with anxiety, agitation, impulse control, this is more narrowing in on the profile that moves toward attempts. There's a different impulsiveness or aggression or something that's happening within the people who have these diagnoses that makes it more likely that they move toward an attempt. It's a risk factor. So let's talk about a theory for suicide, the interpersonal theory for suicide that really looks at some of the differences between people who might have passive suicidal thoughts, a desire for suicide, and then a decreased fear of death. People die from suicide because they want to and because they can. Here's the way this theory breaks down. There are two concepts here. The first one here is um, thwarted belongingness. The second one is perceived burdensomeness. If a person is experiencing thwarted belongingness, and we'll talk some more about exactly what that means, and they're experiencing perceived burdensomeness, that leads to a passive desire for suicide. Going back to that question on the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, I wish I could go to sleep and not wake up. When a person gets a sense that neither of those two things will change, hopelessness about burdensomeness and thwarted belongingness, then that leads to desire for suicide. Hopelessness about these concepts leads to desire for suicide. There's another aspect of a person who has the capacity to kill themselves. And when that capacity to kill oneself overlaps with the desire for suicide, that's where we get lethal or near lethal attempts. Desire for suicide, it's a strange word, but it really does change this notion from a passive sense that, you know, it would be okay with me if a bus jumped up on the sidewalk when I happened to be there. Changes from that to I want to. So what is thwarted belongingness all about? It's about a sense of loneliness and about an absence of reciprocal caring relationships. To, uh, to be able to reach out to someone else and to know that someone wants to reach out to you. Uh, to be taken care of and to have an opportunity to take care of someone else. There are some people that are just as happy being alone and really, you know, I, I phrased it this way just for simplicity's sake, but it's about thwarted belongingness. It's about wanting to be connected and not having that. Perceptions of burdensomeness. Now, these can come from any number of areas. 
In family conflict, continuous arguments, someone may feel that I am a burden on my family because we're always fighting. Someone may feel I'm a burden on my family financially because I can't get a job or I've been recently unemployed. Perception of burdensomeness for those whose illness is making it so that others have to be taking care of them. Now, it's not just in families with conflict or with unemployment or with physical illness. There's also this sense of when there's a hopelessness that neither will change, neither the thwarted belongingness nor the perceived burdensomeness. That's what leads to suicidal desire, the hopelessness that neither will change. Thwarted belongingness happens that loneliness is the kind of statements um, that you'd hear, you know, feeling disconnected, not really having a satisfying interaction with someone else. In these reciprocally caring relationships, I'm not support for others and there's no one I can turn to in times of need. Everyone has bad days. Everyone has bad weeks, some months. Lord knows 2020, right? Which uh, I think is in its 360th day, perhaps. Uh, but the hopelessness that neither will change. Perceived burdensomeness. This is about believing that you're so flawed that you're a liability to others. I make things worse for the people in my life. And, and we looked at, you know, almost 70% of you have worked with a client who, who has felt this. My family would be better off if I died. I'm so flawed and I'm a liability to others. Now there's, you know, sometimes a real affect to that. I hate myself, I'm useless. So flawed is to be a liability. So. There is a particularly vulnerable group when it comes to this, and that is the LGBT plus youth. Because of the way that some families react to their coming out, the way that some social groups react to their coming out. What we see here up at the top is some Pacific Clinics data using the cans, um, comparing teens who identified as hetero to teens who identified as LGBT plus. And you can see here, there's different numbers. But those with a, what we would call in the cans vernacular, an actionable item, meaning it was causing functional impairment or it's a safety risk. 17.5% of the LGBT plus clients have suicide risk compared to 3.5% of the hetero population. Almost 13% of the LGBT plus had non-suicidal self-injury, cutting, et cetera, compared to a little over 2% of the hetero. Regarding the diagnosis of depression uh, and the actionable item of depression, two-thirds of the LGBT plus group, about 30% of the hetero 
and sleep disturbance, which also plays a role, doubles up with the LGBT plus group. You know, looking at that notion of the belief the self is so flawed as to be a liability for others. LGBT youth who lost friends when coming out were 20 time, 29 times more likely to report suicide attempts. And part of the dynamic for that may be internalizing the discrimination. So deeply flawed as to be a burden. You know, this section right here, I don't have great data on other elements of discrimination that can become internalized and lead to this same um, dynamic. But you don't have to work too hard to, to see how it could play a role for people who are experiencing racial discrimination or other types of discrimination. Um, it can become internalized. So here, as we're considering points of escalation, the degree to which I feel my belongingness is thwarted and it's hopeless that that's going to change, that can start to lead to more thoughts and actions that kind of drive away the social support group and can get a sense of frustration or exasperation from the social group that kind of drives that thwarted belongingness even further. It's not just a perception, it's an interaction. And the perception of that interaction therein is the escalation. Perceived burdensomeness. The more someone is bothered by affectively and um, cognitively, about being a burden on others, just even that in and of itself may increase the perception of others that this is burdensome, which can make it even worse. We can have a vicious cycle with both of these aspects. Now let's talk about this bottom circle, this capacity for death. How does that happen? Um, well, in this model, they look at two factors, the reduced fear of death and increased physical pain tolerance. So the reduced fear of death, a person might say something like, I have the capability or courage to kill myself. Increased physical pain tolerance might be about, you know, I can take it or I won't feel anything once I pull the trigger. Reduced fear of death and increased physical pain tolerance. Well, how does somebody get that? Um, well, one path toward that increased courage and decreased fear is habituation. And there are any number of paths by which someone may intentionally or unintentionally find themselves habituated to death. People who have been victims of child abuse, 
have in some ways been habituated to this closeness to death. We touched briefly on the notion of suicide clusters already, but there are kind of a vicarious uh, set of risks where if others around commit suicide or die by suicide or attempt, um, the habituation can happen across a high school or a school district or a county or even uh, online. Impulsivity <clears throat> can also impact this habituation. People who are impulsive continually find themselves in these, I could have just died there moments. Sometimes the job leads to habituation. A lot of the research that's done in this area is done with service members. But we can extrapolate from that also and look at certain professions. Maybe law enforcement might be one. Habituation, risk-taking, aggression. And like we had talked about at the beginning, the idea about how attempts escalate is a little bit different in terms of the amount of time over which they escalate than the way that the um, concepts like thwarted belongingness or perceived burdensomeness might escalate. It's an interesting study, a 17-year-long study, where they tracked 180 adolescents who had been hospitalized over almost two decades. Well, they found a couple things. The first one is one that we all know this, right? The best predictor of a suicide attempt is a prior attempt. I think we all have that one uh, pretty well cast in our minds. They also found though, that the number of past attempts, how often someone had attempted over this period of time, really was about future intent, but not about medical lethality. More attempts did not mean more likely to die. There was another part of this also where I think they found that the amount of time between attempts decreased. So suicide attempts for this group of almost 200 they followed um, continued to happen and more close in time as time went on. We talked about how part of what separates suicidal people who have suicidal thoughts from those who make attempts in terms of you know diagnosis, that people with depression as a diagnosis more likely to have suicidal thoughts, but people with diagnoses that include agitation or impulsiveness and anxiety more likely to have attempts. Looking at age groups. 
maybe our, our second aspect of diversity we'll consider today, uh, in addition to the increased risk for the LGBTQ plus population. Percentage of suicides with a crisis on the day of the suicide. Here they looked at physical fights um, that's connected to this graph. You can see a third of the time for those under 18, crisis on the day of the suicide attempt. In fact, for this group under age 34, they reported that the amount of time, this was when they interviewed people who survived near lethal attempts, the amount of time between the desire to die and the actual attempt was less than five minutes for 20% of them. So one out of every five near lethal attempts under the age of 35, one out of five of them, it was just a five minute spot. You can also look at this notion of habituation. How does a physical fight connect with that? You can see, of course, that decreases with age. Now, there may be other dynamics that are included in a crisis or a physical fight besides just the habituation. Uh, the clinicians within each of us uh, really would look at potential for you know, remorse or humiliation or any number of other aspects. But the way that it fits into the interpersonal model would be through habituation. Because aggression is about exposure to painful and provocative experiences. Looking again at the diagnoses, not just ones that would include aspects like agitation and anxiety, but looking at specific diagnoses like PTSD, substance use, and conduct disorder. And even within those diagnoses, just the history of aggression and impulsiveness. So let's take another look at a phenomenon that's sometimes difficult to tease out from suicide risk, and that's non-suicidal self-injury, most typically cutting. And we always have that question, is this person suicidal or not? Are they having suicidal thoughts? Are they experiencing suicidal desire? Well, NSSI almost made it into the DSM-5. So it's in the, the way back pages, 800 something something, listed as a condition for further study. And people who are hospitalized for NSSI, that tends to be in their 20s. And the escalation pattern for this really has a contagion aspect we might even call a, a vicarious habituation. It's very typically learned from or recommended by another person. If at a hospital, if a new person is admitted and that person uh, is showing non-suicidal self-injury, then the rates increase on the unit. So it's not just about contagion from someone they know and trust 
or even someone they're seeking or looking for, it increases on the unit. There really does appear to be something to the frequency of non-suicidal self-injury, where more than five episodes kind of moves it to a different category. In fact, that's part of the diagnosis, uh, the proposed diagnosis, I should say. Uh, if there are five or fewer occasions, it's really not considered or wouldn't be considered a diagnosis of NSSI. This also though takes us back to how do we assess suicide risk? And we were talking about best practices at the beginning. We use the Columbia, and I would imagine most of you do. I think LA County has recommended that. Um, and it's about regular, um, regularly having this conversation and regularly including these questions and being able to track the degree to which someone's suicide risk changes over time. Well, what else might increase someone's capability for suicide? And for some people, that's about tempting fate. Now, this particular study they looked at was active duty service members, but you can see how it would apply across as well. Differentiating, I people who had suicidal thoughts and people who made suicide attempts. And two variables that, that differentiated were the non-suicidal self-injury and tempting fate. Here's the question they used to define tempting fate. They would ask uh, the subjects within uh, their experiment, not experiment, their study, uh, they say people who wish they were dead sometimes do dangerous things as a way to tempt fate. For example, take a lot of drugs or drive too fast or volunteer for dangerous missions or act reckless, recklessly. How often in your life did you ever do dangerous things related to wishing you were dead? People who had an affirmative answer to that were more likely to have made attempts. People who said, you know, well, if it's my time, it's my time. Of those who died by suicide, three quarters test positive for at least one substance in 2018. Of the, I don't have the exact number, but it's 47,000 something American adults who died by suicide in 2018. Three quarters of them tested positive for at least one substance. 40% of those tested positive for alcohol, 25% for opioids. And, you know, when we talk about the capability for suicide, um, decreased fear um, of dying and increased pain tolerance. Well, These two substances have nicknames, right? Um, some people call alcohol liquid courage. And people typically refer to opioids as painkillers. These are the two primary substances that are found um, 
in those who died by suicide. So uh, let's bust a myth, shall we? There is no evidence that people are at increased risk of suicide as they start to get better. I will say that again. <laughs> There's no evidence. Getting better is good news. Yay, <laughs> when people get better. I have no idea why, but most of you were probably told, either in grad school or somewhere along the line in your training, a version of what Bloiler wrote in the early 1900s in German. I'll read what he wrote, and you'll probably be like, yeah, but I'll tell you, no, it's not true. But here's what he wrote. Especially dangerous are the periods of recovery when the suicidal drive is still at least occasionally present, but the patient's energy is no longer so extremely crippled. The energy of the supervisory staff, however, having begun to slacken. So the, uh, the hypothesis of you know, the, the energy deficit being in some ways a protective element from suicide risk. As people's depression starts to improve, they're getting better. That's a good thing. Now, of course, we never take our eye off the ball. Um, we know that if someone has a history of suicide attempts, they're more likely to have a suicide attempt. We know that if someone has suicidal thoughts, uh, we have to be continuously assessing and evaluating. Um, as someone's depression begins to improve or some of those other diagnoses begin to improve, um, we don't turn a blind eye and say, you know, the risk is gone. However, uh, getting better does not increase the risk. One of the interesting things about this statement, though, in addition to the fact that it was uh, so descriptive in some ways that people really just bought it, um, it really talked about this interaction, the energy of the supervisory staff having begun to slacken. <laughs> uh, and we'll take away supervisory staff. This was a statement made out of, you know, hospital setting. But when you think about what is it like to be a family member or a caregiver or even a treatment staff person working with someone who has suicidal risk? One of the um, comments we heard today was of, you know, about a client who every single day expressed suicidal intent or had thoughts of suicide. Um, could wear people out. And this notion of keeping our energy in poise and decision-making in top shape, that's, that importance isn't lost on us. Part of the reason people maybe bought this myth might also be sometimes people do attempt or die during a period of recovery, but it's not at as high a rate as those with worse depression. Uh, but boy, sometimes those unexpected tragedies stick in our mind more. So the way that 
this escalation can happen, you know, one way is getting drunk or high. That's the one that doesn't happen over time as a pattern, but that can happen on a given day. Or sometimes being drunk or high for longer periods, for two, three days, a week or two weeks. That's an escalation. And sometimes even within that, become patterns of habituation. So as someone might be, let's say, drunk or high, and then may get in fights. Well, they don't have to be drunk or high, they may be getting in fights, and there's an escalation in that habituation that leads to a sense that I am capable of doing this. And over time, as an attempt occurs, and even for that person that, that we talked about who's in a wheelchair now, and that was sort of their, that person's worst nightmare, my worst nightmare is that I won't succeed and I'll end up in a wheelchair forever. The way that that may lead to future attempts. Well, now we're at the part where we're going to talk about de-escalating. We can live with that. <laughs> we're, finally, we're finally at it. So let's talk about some of the thoughts that we will focus on in that de-escalation effort. Well, the first one, and I'll use a term that's most typically talked about with people with the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, but it's uh, a concept that really does apply to the escalation of the perceived uh, burdensomeness and the thwarted belongingness. And those are emotional cascades. An emotional cascade is an affect-laden, dysregulated rumination. They can't stop their thinking about how terrible this feels. These intrusive thoughts that are outside of their control, that's an emotional cascade. And there are other studies within people who uh, have made suicide attempts and have had increased desire. And part of what's connected to that is the degree of controllability of the thoughts. The sense of hyperarousal being exquisitely sensitive to the perceived, or not to the, to the actions of others that would lead someone to conclude that they don't belong. The increased sensitivity to every sigh from a caregiver that might, in their sense, prove that they're a burden to others. And people who sense of hopelessness about whether their unemployment will change or their physical um, illness will change haven't necessarily reached a hopelessness that they're a burden. But when that hyperarousal kicks in as a pattern of perceiving and thinking, it can then lead to a sense of catastrophizing. 
it can then start to to feed this idea. If this keeps up, I'm going to wear them out. And it's not worth two of our lives being ruined. It might be a sense of that catastrophizing. They could come from the interaction of any of these issues. And even when, you know, they looked at some of the elements of the clinical presentation that separated those who thought about suicide from those who attempted, elements of anxiety were in there. And catastrophizing is a pattern of thought most common in anxiety. Um, it's amplifying the potentially negative outcome, carrying it to its furthest. So what can we do about these? When we're with a client who is experiencing those escalated thoughts, and this is um, sort of Scott's sense of over the years stuff that I've done that's tended to work more often than other stuff. Um, so if there's input or uh, wisdom from the group, please feel free to, to join in. One strategy to de-escalate suicidal thoughts, and this is connected with any number of evidence-based practices that are very associated with DBT, but others as well, is grounding. And that can maybe short circuit some of the intensely negative risk that's part of that vicious cycle. And part of the grounding, sometimes people look at is the five, four, three, two, one method, right? Work together with the client and say, okay, let's tell me five things you see right now. And what are four things you hear? And what are three things you can touch? What are two things you smell? And what's one thing you taste? And walking someone through the 54321 grounding method can help to de escalate those thoughts as they're happening at that moment. And just returning to the basics with a nod to Abraham Maslow addressing basic needs. The Tendency for these things to maybe feel like the brake lines have been cut is sometimes just connected to hunger, thirst, fatigue. We'll talk about sleep in a second. Um, but addressing the basic needs can help to de-escalate those thoughts. As a caution, um, I know that I've experienced this temptation and I've, I've observed it in others. Sometimes there's, well, very typically, you can hear the contradictions in someone's expression when their thoughts are escalating. And there's a temptation to point out those contradictions to kind of prove them wrong, uh, to prosecute the contradictions, to argue with them for why what they're saying is wrong. Um, in my experience, that's a sucker's game. 
Uh, it's just not going to work. Uh, so you're better off not going there. You can empathize and validate without agreeing with content. Because it is painful. The person who's going through this is in pain. You can validate that. But if we're grounding them, helping them ground themselves, we're addressing basic needs. Now we also though look for openings for their thwarted belongingness to show that there's some hope. We look for openings to show that there's some hope because it's really about that hopelessness about those two constructs that leads to the desire to die. And it's that desire we're looking to de-escalate. Um, this is not about eliminating suicidal thoughts. That's really, that goes more toward the evidence-based practices we had talked about, DBT, CAMS, safety, et cetera. But de-escalating us off that pattern of thought. Well, it's not just the clients who escalate. Um, and I hope my phrasing in this with the what the F and what the H, uh, I hope that doesn't come across as flippant or um, not caring. I don't mean that. What I mean to express is times that I've found myself experienced, experiencing these things, I wasn't expecting them. And I thought, oh my gosh, what the heck do I do now? <laughs> um, and then upon reflection, you realize, well, yeah, I get it. Because family members can escalate. And it's really tiring to be a family member of someone who is thinking about or maybe even desiring suicide. How are you going to sleep if you're not sure if your own child might attempt suicide in the night? How are you going to sleep if you are romantic partner? How are you going to sleep if your brother or your sister, whether that person's a teen or whether you're both adults? How are you going to sleep if your parent? Um, and fatigue over time takes its toll. It increases irritability. Frustration. The suicidal escalation that you may be experiencing with this client is probably not the first one that this family's been through. And they're frustrated about it. And they've been to hospital visits and they've been through ambulances coming to their house and they've been through police and they've been through neighbors and they've been through, there can start to be almost a, a bitterness that's coming out in their voice. As that frustration combines with false alarms, you know, sometimes you can hear things come out of the mouth of a family member Someone might say, you know, you've been talking about this for years and you've put our entire family through hell. If you're going to do it, just do it. You know, that's, those are the kind of moments where you think like, oh, my God, did I just hear that? What the heck does that mean? And I don't believe that that is um, proof that the person who said it 
is of bad intent or is a bad person. I almost never believe that what someone says at their most upset is a window into their soul, right? Uh, what people say when they're at their most upset is typically an expression of their fatigue, frustration, bitterness, etc. Probably not the reflection of who they truly are. And the validation and empathy we have to have for family members, because as painful and difficult as living with suicidal desire is for a client, it's hard for family members. It really is. And sometimes we maybe mistakenly, and I know earlier in careers, we tend to maybe fall for this. We see family members as uh, partners in the treatment endeavor exclusively. And yes, family members are partners in the treatment endeavor, but also yes, family members are under their own stresses and strains, some of which are connected to what's going on with our client. Um, and the compassion and empathy and validation that we need to have for people who are going through that um, becomes an essential part of helping the family through the moment they're in. I don't know if any of you have experienced, but I have. Sometimes family members will film a client going through this type of escalation. They'll pull out their camera and, and start filming. And I'll think, oh my God, that's humiliating. Cut it out. Um, and then almost, you know, what might go into my head is like, what the heck is wrong with you? Well, empathy and validation are also hard to come by for family members. They, they experience a, a deficit of that if they're talking to their own social support or other healthcare professionals and say, this is what happened. Sometimes people brush them off and say, I think you're making too big a deal of it. And they sometimes film in order to be able to say, well, here's proof of just how intense, just how bad, just how close to the edge things were. Now we don't want people filming uh, suicidal escalation in a crisis because in point of fact, it can be humiliating and damaging. But that doesn't reflect an inner evil of the person who's doing it. And you know, sometimes a suicidal escalation spills out onto the sidewalk or into the apartment complex or across the board in care. Um, and then we have strangers that are somehow now part of the mix. And sometimes strangers are extremely helpful or sometimes they give you enough space, but sometimes you might experience an escalation from community members. Some of whom may over empathize with the client and begin crying and pleading for the client's life. And others of whom there's uh, a real desire to solve a problem that they see. They want to jump in and start intervening in a way that might interrupt the, uh, the efforts that you're making toward helping this person settle. This gets back to the idea of who are we intervening with, with our clients? 
Uh, our client is the client. We all know that. But, or I should even say, and uh, our goal is to influence the client in the situation to its most healthy direction. So sometimes that means we're intervening with influencing uh, family members or community members. How are we gonna do that? Well, just like uh, the strategies for de-escalating thoughts, these are ones that I've kind of come across in my experience that have tended to work better than others, but it doesn't make it an exhaustive list. But we can provide comfort and guide families through the moment. We can help them through. Part of our experience, and in this group, uh, almost 95% of us have worked with clients with suicidal thoughts. So we've been there. Um, we can help guide families through the moment. That can be comforting to them. And we can recognize that what people say under stress does not truly reflect what they feel. I've occasionally heard this phrase, and I'm going to say it out loud, just so we can recognize it for how wrong it is. Sometimes when we hear the worst thing someone says, we say, okay, now their true feelings just came out. What the heck? Who decided that the worst equals the true? Um, that's not accurate. There's no support for that type of belief at all. And in fact, as a bedrock for any of our interventions, that Rogerian foundation of unconditional positive regard, genuineness and empathy exists so that our interventions are more likely to work. To do that, we facilitate compassion by demonstrating compassion. We can help family members, influence family members toward becoming more compassionate with our client by demonstrating compassion toward them for what they're going through. And we can de-escalate other people um, in the way that we guide family members through the moment. We can divide and de-escalate. Let's say, that the client's grandparent is watching the client's brother start to come undone and even yell at the client. We can guide that grandparent to say, would it be okay if you spoke with this person in the other room? In, in my in my mind's eye, we're on a home visit right now. Uh, if you spoke with them in the other room, um, and that grandparent can uh, support the sibling of the client. Validating doesn't always have to be about agreeing with content. You know, there are multiple ways to agree, and we can agree with concepts. We can agree with uh, the feeling. We can agree with principles. We can validate experience because you know what? It is tough to wonder whether someone else wants to die. It is frustrating when everything that you've tried hasn't worked. You can start to feel bitter if 
your family friendships have been splintered because other people maybe keep their distance. All of that is hard. Um, and our job is to help it turn around. Our job is to help next week be better than this week. Next month be better than this month. Next year be better. And sometimes even with other people, whether those are community members or family members, sometimes we need to give people some space uh, on their own to say, you know, it's probably smart to say, go take five, a quick walk around the block, and then come back. Or, you know, pick a song on your phone and go listen to that entire song and then come and rejoin us to kind of push reset. These strategies to de-escalate other people who are starting to escalate themselves and contribute to that escalation. De-escalating behaviors. And at the bottom here, we see what we mentioned before, who says danger to self doesn't also include danger to others. It might. And in fact, some of the risk factors that differentiate those who think about suicide from those who attempt are things like irritability, agitation, and aggression. And behaviorally, this can show up. This can mean uh, reaching for weapons. And sometimes the direction that a uh, weapon may go could be toward themselves or toward someone else. You may have worked with clients, uh, I have, who start walking toward the kitchen. And in those moments, you think, oh, damn it. Uh, and when their hand goes into a drawer, you just think, and, and right, this isn't the purpose of this training, but I'll say, like, why, why the great cutlery <laughs> in, our, in everybody's home? I, I know, like, none of us work at butcher shops, but so, some clients, when they, and I, I go, well, why do you guys even have that knife? in your drawer, God's sake. The de-escalation of behavior with that irritability, agitation, and aggression is not just the behavior, it's that affect-laden behavior. It can feel really explosive in the moment. So what do you do then? Well, the first one is um, we're more persuasive when we can present in a calm way. And that's hard for us uh, to be perfect. So then we have to be intentional. And that means attending to our pitch, pace, tone of speaking. We've all seen that uh, well-known communication stat that less than 10% of the message someone receives from us is the content. Our body, our posture, our position, the way we hold our hands, a calm presentation is going to be more persuasive to the person who is showing this kind of behavioral escalation. And sometimes it can feel personal. It is a baited hook when you get insulted. Do not bite it. <laughs> Do not respond when you are accused of not caring, when you are accused of uh, being a problem, when, when there's a statement like, 
we all talk about after session how much you're terrible. <laughs> Do not bite that baited hook and say, well, I'm sorry that I haven't been helpful to you and your family over the years. Stop, or over the months, right? No, do not bite the baited hook of an insult. In fact, dismissiveness, um, you know, it's its one of those tough areas. We, we as mental health professionals are engagers, not <laughs> dismissers. Uh, so sometimes having someone turn their back and walk away from you, and by the way, agitation sometimes shows up in the feet uh, and people start to move and they can leave a clinic, or they can leave a house, or they can leave a tent, and down the alley we go, right? And we have to maintain readiness to move out of the way. And this calm presentation combined with that readiness, that takes a little bit, right? Um, we want to be attuned to what potential there is. Sometimes picking up a glass might lead someone to bang it over their own forehead, but sometimes it might get thrown at you. You know, safety planning is connected to this de-escalation. There's a time and a place. While someone is escalated, it's almost impossible to do safety planning. So in order to do safety planning, it's part of what you do as someone has come down from that behavioral escalation. But it looks at the idea that problem-solving and coping skills diminish in a crisis. Back to Patsy's comments about helping people look at that plan A. Uh, it's very hard to come up with a plan A when you are escalated. When you are in, in the middle of an emotional cascade or catastrophizing, we can help walk people through that. Means restriction is another part of safety planning. And sometimes even during an escalation, we might say something like, if we're standing in a kitchen, for example, let's move to another room. Now, we don't need to say because there are knives, uh, you know, in a drawer that are right next to you, let's move to another room. But we could say, let's, let's switch to another room. Let's switch over to the living room and have a seat. Or uh, in a clinic. Uh, if there are uh, potential weapons that are nearby. And certainly with safety planning, and hopefully you'll have, if you haven't already, the opportunity to do that online training through the Suicide Prevention Resource Center on counseling on access to lethal means, calm, um, guns, uh, and being able to address safety planning regarding uh, means restriction of guns. And this type of safety planning, what I really appreciate about it, and I think we've got a couple people on this call that are experienced with substance use, so I'll, I'll, I'll make a parallel with the expert uh, type of strategy within substance use. That's screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. That's what expert stands for. And there's the same idea here with safety planning for suicide risk. Screening, that would be like using the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale. And the brief intervention, that's right here. And also here, right? Enhancing social support and emergency contacts. And enhancing the social support also is about helping those around the 
person who's experiencing this suicidal escalation in ways that can concretely decrease the thwarted belongingness and perceived burdensomeness. And keeping the person motivated for treatment. There's another element of hope. People who stick with treatment tend to get better. Uh, there's a DBT type statement. Um, suicide would be about dropping out of treatment. And we already agreed you're not going to drop out. By the way, before pulling off a DBT type statement, I recommend full DBT training because uh, we don't want to be pithy and uh, careless with some of those. And we help people to recognize their own warning signs. Part of any escalation is ways to prevent the next one. And I think with certainly not adequate time, but hopefully um, enough demonstration of the importance to say that it's tough to be the mental health professional dealing with people who are having an escalation of suicidal thoughts and behavior. We can panic. We can freak out. This is heavy. Risks are real. And our own dysregulation can impact our decision-making. One of those decisions, you know, for the people who are LPS designated are questions about, like, should I facilitate a hospitalization or not? And what if I facilitate a hospitalization for someone who didn't really need it? The nickname for that sometimes is a soft hold. What if I write a soft hold? Um, that maybe has a, uh, an effect that could make the course of treatment worse. Um, is that going to be a breach of trust with the person? There's decent data that over-hospitalizing over people actually increases their risk of uh, a lethal attempt. But then what if I don't hospitalize someone who really did need it? Right? What, what if I'm not sensitive enough to what's going on? What if I'm not specific enough to what's happening? And with all of that, to be able to project empathy, that's hard stuff. Because, you know, it turns out our own job's got its own pressures. Our own life's got its own pressures. And guess what? We've been locked in our houses, not locked in our houses, we've been isolated from a lot of our social support systems uh, for going on a year now. Uh, that's tough for everybody. And in these situations, the pressure we may feel, and I'll give maybe 30 seconds to this idea, the risk of if something goes wrong here, how much of this blame is going to land on me? And that's a weird kind of thought to have because empathy is about being able to connect and be there with your client, to be present. But panic might short circuit that by leading us to say, if anything goes wrong here, how much of that lands on me? And then that might lead us to hospitalize someone who doesn't really need it. So strategies to maintaining our composure. What can we do? Well, a strategy for anyone who's dysregulated and out of control and escalating is for us to kind of loan our self-control to them and others. 
And, and some of you may have been born cool. Uh, but for the rest of us, uh, we've got to take steps to maintain. So what does that mean? That also means self-monitoring our own breathing and heart rate and taking steps to regulate those in the moment. Because panic can happen, but also recovery from panic can happen. Talking through our options and contingencies, that was exactly what we just heard. How do we maintain our composure? We talk it through. It doesn't have to exist only in our head. We can say it out loud. And in fact, that really does build something of a consensus, a shared vision with the client. You know, how are we going to manage this moment? Because empathy is a job skill. There's every reason to believe that genuineness, empathy, and unconditional regard are the foundation upon which every intervention functions. And given that truth, we then have to not just see whether or not it kind of coincidentally occurs, and boy, it'd be great if I felt empathy for this client as opposed to that client. We we dial it into the right level. If we are overly empathic with a client, then we're feeling too much of what they feel and our thinking is compromised. If we are kind of so concerned about going there for our own mental health and we're not going to go there at all and we keep a distance from a client, well, then our ability to influence and persuade. And even when a decision to hospitalize has been made, we've still got time to go. Sometimes an ambulance arrives in half an hour, sometimes in four hours. And we've got one goal and one goal only, and that is to get everyone safely through. During that time that we're waiting for an ambulance, we are not trying to have a deep trauma-related conversation, even though the client may have some desire to go there. We're not going there. Though. We're certainly not going to apply consequences or do anything to increase feelings of guilt and shame or humiliation. We're not even trying to find a bigger perspective. We're trying to get from now to then. We are bridging time. That's our purpose. One goal and one goal only to get everyone safely through the decision to hospitalize and the ambulance transporting the person to the hospital. Sometimes it's about pushing reset. You know, like the IT department says, have you tried turning it off, turning it off and then turning it on again? This is really about, do we have enough social support in place for this to be a solution that helps with escalation? But sometimes escalation really is so driven by the lack of sleep that someone's experienced uh, that falling asleep can be helpful. We can't do that. We don't have the luxury for that to be a de-escalation strategy with someone who's by themselves, but with those who have enough others around who can be helpful, it is. Because this is heavy, this is no joke. This is a risk that's inherent in our jobs. And something that I want to appreciate in those of you who 
um, really added comments to our time together, um, the idea is let's do our best. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations we may or may not have been fully prepared for, but we're going to pull on the fundamentals and our best sense of what's likely to work. And we're going to do those things because the risk is real. And, um, you know, for the 10% of you who have worked with clients who have died by suicide, um, I want to validate you for continuing to help our profession with your hard-earned um, and valid experience and wisdom. Well, I want to thank all of you for being part of this and the way that we spent our morning together uh, in a constructive way to help us be more helpful to our clients who are experiencing these problems. Take care.